Hi, this is Sarit Schwetzer, and welcome to the It Is Taught podcast, a podcast devoted to the teachings of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, as recorded in his most famous work, the Tanya. My hope for this show is to make these teachings accessible and relatable to the average person, regardless of prior Jewish education or affiliation. The episodes follow the prescribed daily study portions and are meant to serve as practical lessons in how to live your life as your true self and develop an authentic and powerful relationship with your Creator. I have personally experienced the effects the study of this work has had on me, and I'm excited to share what I can of this knowledge with you. So please join me on this journey of learning, self-growth, and connection with your source. Hi, and welcome to the It Is Top Podcast. This is episode 342 for the 5th of Cheshvan in a leap year. So a very common critique or, or challenge that irreligious Jews bring to Judaism is they say, and you find this often sometimes even in like the conservative or reform movement, is they say, okay, maybe I can accept that the written Torah is true, is godly, is divine. However, when you look at the oral Torah, when you look at the Gemara, when you look at the Mishnah, it's filled with arguments, debates, contradictions. The rabbis themselves cannot agree on what it is that they're saying. So how can you really say that it's divine? Isn't it proof that looking at these debates in the Talmud, looking at the fact that the rabbis themselves can't agree on what they're talking about, this goes to show, and sometimes there's like no even conclusion there, doesn't this show that there is no objective truth? There's no objective reality, uh, at least when it comes to Torah, because they're just making it up as they go along, so to speak, the seemingly, that's what it seems like, right? So today's uh, episode, today's section of the Tanya is actually going to be addressing this, but with slightly more mystical kind of terminology. Um, how is the ultra going to go about this? And he actually is, we're not actually going to have a full, it's more of a question kind of episode today. We're not really going to come to a conclusion um, today, but it's going to kind of open it, open it up for some thought is the whole concept of how we reference the revealed Torah, meaning the the Mishnah, the, the oral Torah, the Gemara, and that kind of thing. So if you, you've been following along so far, so in yesterday's episode, we brought up this idea of trees, the two main trees that were found in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we talked about how the tree of life is really a reference to Kabbalah more than anything. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's more of a reference to the nitty gritty of Jewish law and uh, what's permissible, what's not allowed, um, is this instance okay? Like all that stuff, all of the back and forth debate, which seems to imply that when we're talking about the oral Torah, the Mishnah and the Gemara is the main component of the oral Torah, that seems to be stemming from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But what we'll learn today, and I think we mentioned it yesterday as well, is that in fact, this isn't the case. In fact, even the Gemara and the Mishnah, we have to say is part of the tree of life because Torah is called the tree of life. And there's a few proofs for this. First of all, um, when we talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, like the name implies good and evil. So if we were to say that really the Mishnah and the Gemara contains good and comes from the tree of good and evil, we're basically implying that there's evil, God forbid, in the in the Mishnah and the Gemara. We know that that's not true. That's sort of like the secular idea of like that, uh, the secular notion that when people are studying different, um, the rabbis in the Mishnah and the Gemara, when they're talking about these different things, 
things. It's a very human kind of experience where there's good, there's bad, they're flawed. It's just a bunch of rabbis who are coming up with different laws. That would make sense if the if the Mishnah and the Gemara came from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But we know that this can't be the case for a few reasons. First of all, we know that we do accept the fact that it's divine, that the Mishnah and the Gemara is divine, which means that it is coming from a place of, of uh, the tree of life. And we always reference it as being the tree of life. Like um, if you ever go to, to, to Shul, you know, when they, when they lift up the Sefer Torah, which is okay, it's the written Torah, but we kind of have an allusion to it with it, including the oral Torah within it. We, we call the Torah as a whole, the whole Torah, the Etzchaim, the tree of life for those who hold on to it. Uh, another thing is that when we, if, if we were really to say that the tree of life is really just a reference to the Zohar, to the Kabbalah and all of that stuff, well, the Zohar and the Kabbalah, up until pretty recently, this was like very, very secret knowledge that very few people knew. It was not written down. It wasn't taught or anything like that. So it can't be that like all of these years when people talked about the tree of life before the Kabbalah was even revealed to the world, that it was simply a reference to Kabbalah. It has to be that it was talking about Torah itself. So we're going to talk about this and we're going to talk about the idea of the preciousness of the Torah, of the preciousness of the Mishnah and the Gemara, these these sections of the Torah that are not so mystical, that are not so capitalistic and are not so straightforward, that are filled with arguments and debates and all of that stuff and how these sections are really considered to be very divine, so divine, in fact, so holy, in fact, that they actually take precedence over prayer, which prayer is considered to be from Kabbalah, from this more mystical dimension. But in fact, there's something about the written, the, the oral Torah, the Mishnah and the Gemara that even is holier. It's considered to have like a su- be supersedent over and above prayer. And we see this throughout history that rabbis who really took prayer very seriously and even rabbis like Rabbi Shimon Baruchai, who was like, you know, the master of, of Kabbalah, he was the one that wrote down the secret of the Zohar. He still made sure to learn uh, and, and not have his prayers detract from his learning to the point that he did not have his Torah study even be interrupted um, for prayer to the point that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was considered like one of those people whose sole occupation was Torah study and thus was exempt from prayer. So there's something about Torah study. And when we say Torah study, again, to specify, we mean the study of the oral law, of the revealed parts of Torah, of the Mishnah and Gemara. It really takes precedence over prayer. So um, we're going to be really delving into this today. And again, we don't really get an answer. There's not like a full answer here that we're given. This is going to come up, I believe, in tomorrow's episode. We're going to get more into the answer part of of, uh, of this question, but just to kind of give you a little bit of a taste of a smidgen of like the way that I would explain the answer is that one thing that you would notice in the debates in the Gemara, it's true, they are all filled with different debates and arguments and, and um, back and forth and that kind of thing. However, the thing that's interesting to notice about, about these things is the arguments all revolve around certain things, certain objective facts. So like, for example, so like, let's say like, sure, there's in, in the Gemara, you'll find sometimes arguments about Shabbos. What time does Shabbos come in? What time does Shabbos come out? What time, uh, what's allowed to do on Shabbos? What's not allowed to do on Shabbos? Is this considered malacha? Is that considered malacha work for Shabbos? But one thing that you won't see is a debate over 
that should we keep Shabbos or should we not keep Shabbos? So there's an there's like sort of like this underlying agreement that interestingly, almost ironically, be, due to the, the debates, the debates actually point to a fundamental agreement amongst all of these scholars about certain big precepts. There are certain axioms that should not be taken for granted that aren't necessarily taken for granted in the wider society, in the wider public, but they are very much so taken for granted amongst these rabbis. So interestingly enough, it's actually the debates themselves that actually kind of like point to a certain objective reality, a certain godly truth that all of these rabbis uh, agree on, you know? So it's kind of like if you think about it, that like if you and your friends are all deciding uh, that you want to go on vacation to Mexico, let's say, uh, but then you have disagreements about like, okay, but where should we stay in Mexico? Which city, which hotel, which resort, blah, 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 whatever. The fact that you're having all of those debates points to the fact that there is a Mexico that you're all going to be visiting and that you're, you're all unified in this wanting to go to Mexico, right? So that's the basic idea. But but that's kind of step getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because like I said, today is really more delving into the realm of just pointing out this question and delving into this question and, and really pointing to the fact that although at first glance it might seem to a person that the, the oral Torah is in this realm of uh, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, meaning that like it's really getting into like in a real way. There's like a discussion about what's allowed, what's not allowed, or whatever. Um, so it's you know obviously um, dealing with things that are not allowed, dealing with things that are not godly, dealing with things that are impure. So it might seem at first glance that this that this realm of the oral Torah comes from the tree of good and evil but in fact today we're really going to focus on the fact that no it actually comes from the tree of life we're not going to talk about how it is that it comes from the tree of life today but we're going to talk about like just kind of some proofs some uh, examples some uh, demonstrations of how it really does come from the tree of life. So with that being said, let's get into the text. And for context, we are in the middle of Epistle 26 of Igeras HaKodesh. And so if you remember yesterday, we really, yesterday's episode was really just one long citation from the Ramahemna, all about, the Ramahemna is a part of the Zohar, uh, it's an Aramaic, and it was all about just this whole idea of the different trees, the trees of knowledge of good and evil, and um, and the tree of life, and the conclusion yesterday was that the tree of life really is representative of Kabbalah, that's like the, any the, the, it, it, anytime we talk about Kabbalah and that kind of thing, the more mystical side of Judaism, it comes from the, the tree of life. So today, um, we see, we start off and the altar says that at first glance, just looking at things kind of like superficially, it's looking at the citation that we looked at yesterday for those who don't really understand things like who are kind of lacking in understanding, they might think that this study of the laws of what it is that's forbidden, forbidden, what's permissible, and the whole thing about like impurity and all of that stuff comes from the tree of good and evil. Uh, so, however, this is very surprising in and of itself, and it actually contradicts the plain meaning, like somebody who would come to this kind of um, conclusion that, uh, studying the oral law and studying these like different laws of what's allowed, what's not allowed and that kind of thing. It's coming from a place, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He's the ultra rabbi says this actually contradicts the simple writings and the teachings of our sages that the whole entire Torah, as it is revealed to us and to our children is called the Itchaim la Machazikimba, the tree of life for those who hold fast to it. That's actually a citation from Mishle chapter three, verse 18. 
And so he says, so, so first of all, that's one issue with this idea that he brings up is the fact that it can't be that uh, these discussions of these laws come from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because the whole entirety of the Torah comes from the tree of life. And not only that, but when we actually did, when when the the scholars of the Mishnah and the scholars of the Gemara wrote down these different things, the Zohar was still concealed to them. So meaning this Zohar, which we've been terming, terming the tree of life, was concealed to them. And so thus, when we talk about the tree of life, it couldn't at that time be referencing like explicitly the Kabbalah. It had to be referencing the entirety of the Torah, which included these um, these these uh, debates and the Mishnah and the Gemara. And so, uh, and even like this Kabbalah at that time was was hidden from all the Chachamim, except for a select few. And even then, even for those select few, it was studied in a very concealed manner. So it's not like these like select few people sat together in public and they everybody knew like, oh, okay, those are the, the Kabbalists that are studying Kabbalah. Even the way that they studied it was uh, was in secret. This is talked about in the Gemara in Masechet Chagiga on page 11b and 13a. And so as, uh, as the Arizal explains, so we have this tradition brought down to us through the Arizal, that it's specifically in the latter generations that it became permitted, and in fact, it became a mitzvah to reveal this chokhmah. Uh, but this was not the case in the earlier generations. And in fact, we see that with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who is the author of the Zohar, uh, he, he writes in the Zohar that um, that it was not actually, he didn't give permission for people to uh, to reveal this. Just for, It was just for him and for his associates. And that's it. And so now the ultra is going to bring another challenge to this idea of uh, of cons- thinking of the Mishnah and the Gemara as being the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because he says, if according to this, if it was really true that this uh, learning about what's permitted and what, what's forbidden and what's permitted and all of these different laws and things like that um, were really coming from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it would not, they would not push aside, uh, it shouldn't override the mitzvah of, of prayer which was written because why because because prayer was was uh was set out according to the secrets of the zohar with different kinds of supernal unifications and things like that so like when we pray it's not like sometimes you know again another kind of um challenge that a lot of people bring to prayer to kind of institutionalize prayers they say like oh i didn't make up these words these are words that were written by the rabbis i'd rather pray to god in my own words and that kind of thing yes that's fine you should totally pray to god in your own words your own language that's totally encouraged and a good thing to do however there is some kind of benefit to using the actual sitter and praying those actual words because those words were put together those prayers were put together by kabbalists who uh wrote these things down and and it's uh, there's a lot of kabbalistic spiritual ideas in the prayers and the specific order the specific wording and all of that kind of stuff so going back to what it is that we're learning about so if that is true that prayer is more in the realm of kabbalah more in the realm of the zohar why would it be? And if Kabbalah really is from this tree of life, which is really higher than the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then in that case, then prayer should supersede Torah study, right? Because it's like, if you want to tap into like the highest of the high, you want to go straight to the Kabbalah. You don't want to be involved in good and evil and like all of that kind of stuff. Um, but yet we see that this was not the case because we see like, for example, with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his um, colleagues, we see that, in the, as it's stated in the Gemara, this is in Masechet Shabbos, page 11a, that it talks about how, uh, like in reference to Rabbi Shimon Baruchai and his colleagues, that um, 
that they their whole occupation was Torah study and that anybody whose sole occupation is Torah study, they actually don't have to interrupt their Torah study for prayer. So if I'm not mistaken, this was like a really interesting thing is that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, while he was stuck in a cave um, in hiding, he actually from my understanding, he actually didn't pray. He just learned Torah all day long because he was considered as somebody whose sole occupation was Torah and his Torah was so high and so lofty that it superseded prayer. So this seems to bring a, a glitch into this understanding because if we say that prayer is Kabbalah, this tree of life, and learning about the laws is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, why should learning supersede prayer. So we know obviously that that must mean, in other words, this is what the altar is getting at, is that the um, that learning about these laws, learning the Gemara actually does come from the tree of life. And as we'll learn, it actually is, is connected to something even higher than prayer itself and higher than Kabbalah. So um, the altar Rabbi goes on, and so he's going back to talking about this idea of somebody who's who's uh, learning Torah is their sole occupation. So he says that this is true even if they're occupied with civil law, like even if it's like something that's like very very like nitty gritty. It's called um, nazikin, like the laws of damages. Um, like for example, Rabbi Yehuda, who's spoken about in Masechet Brachos, page twenty A. So this Rav Yehuda, so he was like, he was very involved in the study of civil law, the study of damages. And so in order not to inter interrupt his study, he he was so involved with his Torah study, he would only pray once every 30 days while he was reviewing his study, as it's explained in the Gemara there. So meaning to say that there's something about Torah study that's very lofty to the point that it actually supersedes prayer. And then another proof that the altar of brings as he says you see also in the jerusalem talmud in the first chapter of brachos we see this whole thing about uh how rabbi shimon bar yochai was of the opinion that when it comes to the recitation of the shema so it's okay to uh interrupt the study of scripture like the study of of like uh, of the chumash the written torah in order to recite the shema but not Mishnah. So if somebody's involved in Mishnah and uh, they need to say the Shema, they should not interrupt our studies. And so this shows that that this Mishnah is superior to to uh, scripture, according to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So basically the oral law, there's something about the oral law that's superior to the written law, according to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai did not distinguish between the different orders of the Mishnah. So there's different um, different books of the Mishnah. There's the order of Zrai, Moed, Kadashim, um, Taharos, and Ezekin. You know, there's there's uh, there's different orders of the Mishnah, and and the uh, the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai didn't distinguish between these. And now the ultra just brings like a little bracket here, a little parentheses. That's just a very technical note. Um, if it's it's not super important to spend too much time on it, it's just kind of like a technicality. But he says that the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, in this instance of him saying that uh, that the Mishnah supersedes the written Torah, this is this actually contradicts uh, a different thing that where he taught in the Ramahemna, where he said that the where he called the Mishnah the handmaiden, and then he called the uh, the Kabbalah, the queen, and then he called the written Torah, the king. So it seems to be like a different hierarchy there where it seems like in that case that the written Torah is the king, then the queen is the Kabbalah, and then the Mishnah is actually the lowest one, the handmaiden. Um, and so then there's another bracket that 
kind of maybe explains this is that basically when we say the king, the written Torah is the king, this is the Yesod of Abba vested in the Zeran pain. And this is explained by the Arizal. So I don't want to really take the time to kind of try to understand that too much because it's it's really just a side note just to kind of like explain a little bit of like a technicality, a possible contradiction in what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai uh, explains, but the main idea, the main takeaway is really that simple thing that we see that the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai really puts so, so much importance on the Mishnah and on this, these uh, on these these debates within that had to do with problems and solutions that that really do come like the actual getting involved in the debates does have a side of evil and a side of impurity right because we are we're talking about in the in the mishnah in the gemara there are discussions about what's allowed what's not allowed what's impure what's not pure so the subject matter really does have this level of like good and bad within it but nevertheless we see that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was very much involved in this study, even when he was living in the cave. And in fact, it's taught that the the fact that he was under so much um, pain within this cave, like he was suffering in this cave, this suffering in his cave actually merited for him to be able to be so involved in the, in this uh, in this study, in this study of the oral law, in the study of the Mishnah, as it is recounted in the Gemara in. Masechet Shabbos, page 33b, that for every question posed by Rabbi Pinchas ben Ya'ir, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai came up with 24 solutions. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai told him that if not for him seeing him like that, meaning if, if not for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai being in the cave, he would not be able to come up with these solutions. So it's actually the suffering that he experienced in being trapped in this cave for so many years actually gave him the ability to be able to um, to come up with, to have this like deeper insight into the Mishnah, deeper insight into these, these, these uh, problematic queries that came up. And... Now there's another parenthesis where the altar rabbi says that in fact, we have to say that the main thing that they were involved with in studying in the cave, Rabbi Shimon Baruchai and his students, was with the Mishnah, was with the 600 orders that, uh, that were around during that time. So this was before Rabbi Yehuda Nasi compiled the Mishnah, wrote it down into six orders. So it was at that time, it was 600 orders of the, of the Mishnah. And that was the, the main occupation, says the Altar of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his students at that time. And how do we know this? Because we know that there's this idea that, uh, that during that time that he was in the cave, then he could have completed the Zohar and the Tikkunei Zohar in two or three months. Because for sure, we know that he didn't, he didn't repeat any subject twice. So somehow there's this teaching that while Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was in that cave, he didn't repeat anything twice. He just learned something and he learned it once. So if that was the case, what did he do for the rest of the time that he was there in the cave? Um, from my understanding, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was in the cave for 13 years. So if that's true, so if, if he could have studied the entirety of the Zohar and the Tukhne Zohar, which is long, you know, but like relative to the Mishnah, it's not that long. He could have completed that in two to three months. So what did he do during the rest of the time? He was involved in studying this Mishnah. And uh, not only that, and this is the conclusion to this section, is that the sages taught, and this is from Masechet Brachos, page 8a, that since the day that the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, um, the the Holy One, blessed be He, what does He have left? He has the four cubits of a halacha alone. So meaning to say that there's something about halacha, the Jewish law, the study of the Jewish law, that's very, very precious to God. And that is really, really very divine. And in fact, more divine in a way than 
anything, not more divine in the sense that the other ones aren't divine, but more holy or more precious than Kabbalah, than prayer, than even the written Torah, maybe we can say. So we'll learn more about this tomorrow and, uh, and we'll come to a little bit of a deeper understanding of it. But today was just kind of like just to open your eyes to uh, and to get you to think about these things a little bit more and to maybe have a slightly new perspective on the fact that when you look at these debates that are found in the Gemara and the Mishnah uh, and you just see it as like a bunch of rabbis arguing and it seems really like man-made and very human, that perhaps that's not the full story and perhaps there's something very, very divine about all of it um, on a much deeper level. So that's it for today and to be continued tomorrow. And I'll speak to you then. Thanks for listening to the It Is Top podcast hosted by Sarit Switzer. This podcast is dedicated in loving memory of my maternal grandfather, Avraham Yitzchak ben Binyamin Cohen of Blessed Memory. Music by Shoshana. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please share it with others and subscribe on YouTube, Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to leave us a five-star review. To find out more about the It Is Top project, including more information on my soon-to-be-published book, please visit our website, itistaught.com. To catch the latest from me, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Looking forward to speaking with you tomorrow, and until then, have a great day.